Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. My name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Anne Hubach. We're at Helioterra Wines in Portland. It's November 21st, 2019. Thank you so much for joining us today, Anne. We appreciate this. Yeah. Uh, we'll start with the most important question of all, which is why wine? And why not wine? Um, I So my story starts um, in the Midwest. As you know, bastion of wine. <laughs> <laughs> Not at all. Um, I grew up in Wisconsin. I went to undergrad in Madison. Um, I developed a passion for food and wine in college. And it, and actually, I had two grandmothers and a mother that were very talented cooks as well. So we had a lot of big family meals. And that inspired me to get more and more into food and into cooking, which in the Midwest, as I just said before, wine is not really something that's very prevalent. Mm -hmm. Food is, Mm -hmm. drinking is, Mm -hmm. but not necessarily drinking wine. And so after my undergraduate, I was very close to actually going to culinary school in Chicago, um, but instead had the opportunity to uh, work with a nonprofit organization out here in Portland. So I packed up my small car and drove across the country and moved out to Portland, not knowing a soul. So when I got here, had my day job, but I thought, well, I'm, I don't like to sit idle, so I might as well get a part-time gig on the weekends. So I ended up doing that, and I found myself working in the tasting room at Tualatin Estate Vineyards, one of the oldest first plantings in not only the Willamette Valley, but in Oregon. And I, I was honestly blown away. I had no idea that I had just landed in one of the most up-and-coming wine regions, because this was 22 years ago now, which the Oregon wine industry 22 years ago was still fairly, I won't say infantile because it had definitely gotten some legs, but it was still within its first two decades, really, of of establishment. And so, um, you know, the amount of Oregon wine available in Wisconsin 20 years ago was kind of nothing really um so i didn't i didn't know i honestly didn't know and i moved out here and then all of a sudden getting that job in the tasting room i was really astounded and impressed and excited about what was happening here in oregon and that you know it just triggered it's like well why the heck would i want to go into kitchens and culinary when i could go into wine um my, my background is in geology and environmental studies, so that's very rooted in the land and the earth and the soil. So I already had that background and the chemistry background. I had the culinary passion. It was kind of like all these things were tangentially leading me to that point. Um, so got that part-time job at, in that tasting room, which was really kind of a very pivotal, life-changing experience. And then after a few years, went back to school at Chemeketa and got my winemaking degree and, you know, started in um, back in 2002 working in um, Andrew Homaker, or I'm sorry, Andrew, Air Homaker Cellar, along with Andrew Rich and Lynn Penner-Ash and a bunch of other great names, the first year that the studio opened and um, kind of the die was cast. So 
I, I didn't come to wine like a lot of people where, you know, they traveled Burgundy or they had a, a family with a cellar or anything like that. My experience is really based on a passion for Oregon and Oregon wine and what we do here and striving to do the best that I can do with what we have here as resources. So that's, that's what led me to here today. Awesome. Tell me about your initial impressions. You mentioned going to Tualatin and tasting room without really any kind of background in Oregon or Oregon wine at that point. What were your initial impressions of the industry? What were your initial impressions of the wine? Well, my, my initial impressions of the industry was fairly small, but a really wonderful one. I mean, um, Jim Bernot uh, at the time had recently purchased Tualatin Estate. So I got to meet Jim, who's been doing this for a long time. Bill Fuller, who was one of the founders. Efren Loeza, who was the, the vineyard manager and now has his own vineyard, um, was really a mentor. And he's just one of the kindest souls on the planet. And so to start with just a really inspired group of people. And Jim, even when I was working in the tasting room, he would let me glean grapes and take them home and start making basement wine. So before before I even had a commercial uh, wine, I had probably four vintages of Carboy Basement wine with my uh, with my friends, and that you know that was Jim was very helpful and was like, sure, take a few grapes, you know, doesn't doesn't matter to me, and it would be great to see what you do. Mm -hmm. um, so that was my first impression and my first introduction to it, and. Um, I love networking and I love meeting people, so that was just the initial and then quickly grew to meet lots of other folks from there. So tell me about the decision to, you, you, you've, you've tried a little bit of basement wine, or garage wine, or under the bed wine. Uh, right. tell, me about the, tell me about the decision to, to go into it full time, to go back to school and to start what, what has become Helio Terra now. Right. Uh, tell me about your kind of, what about making wine appeal to you? Um, well, I mean, I was always a creative kid and I've always loved science and the fact that to me wine is a almost perfect blend of art and science and there's so very few careers that you have that can do that. You have lab that gives a very objective opinion and then you have taste and smell that's very subjective and the fact that you can create art that also has a root in science and um, have something that ultimately brings joy. I mean all of those things drive so much pleasure to me and are something that that is really a very it was a very compelling thing early on mm -hmm. and something that was very um it just hit at my soul in a way that i was excited about just also the active nature of the work this is not a sedentary job at all the fact that you know every single day is different and it has a seasonality to it and mother nature keeps us on our toes and that we get to um you know we get to take a new shot at it every single year, but still make something that honors the sense of place and the growing conditions that Mother Nature handed to us at that time. Um, it's just, it's a neat challenge and a really, it's an honor to be able to be a winemaker. So tell me about the process of, of learning it and of going going to Chemeketa and, and, and becoming a winemaker. What was there, Were there things about it that surprised you or that, that were unexpected parts of being a winemaker? Um, say less surprising except that there's really no one reason or path of how to do it everybody has 
as you know from doing these interviews, everyone has an opinion. Um, and every, <laughs> maybe more than one opinion. You know, I loved that I got to work for a lot of different people. You know, like I said earlier um, in the days of the studio, and maybe I wasn't working directly with Tony Soder, Lynn Penner-Ash, or Andrew Rich, but even to be a fly on the wall and observe what people are doing. And then I went on to work at Edelsheim and with Dave Page, and I went on to work for Joe Dobbs. And, you know, I worked for a lot of people that varied in both style and size and type of wine that we were making. And I really feel like I gained a very large breadth of knowledge and experience from that. Um, you know, I, I describe myself as a very hands-on learner, and so I had the, the sort of the day job of being able to work for all of these different wineries in Oregon and gain a lot of, of hands-on practical experience, but then in turn back it up with, you know, science and lab and marketing and, you know, just wine appreciation knowledge through classes at Chemeketa. So it, I think, helped to build a very well-rounded background and experience to then bring me to the point of launching Helioterra, where I had this whole basket full of knowledge and experience and opinion that I could draw from and say, you know, well, I really liked how this person did this one technique or how this wine turned out or that vineyard or, and build then from that the pieces that I thought were what was going to be the future style and approach for Helioterra. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about developing your wine, sort of winemaking philosophy over the years and, and take, taking those pieces from people. How did it develop and what would you, how would you describe your winemaking philosophy today? So my winemaking philosophy is, um, first and foremost, I don't own any of my grapes. So I, at the beginning, I have to pick the growers that I not only think do a spectacular job of growing grapes, but ones who are, you know, morally and ethically and from a philosophy aligned with mm -hmm. who I am and what I want to do and frankly also the people who I want to work with you know life is too short to deal with humans that are not really pleasurable to to deal with and so someone might have the best fruit but if I if our personalities don't match I would probably choose to not do business with them on that on that basis um, but furthermore so much about being a non-grower, non-estate owning mm -hmm. winery is that there has to be a level of trust and good communication. And so it's not just about that human interaction, but it's about believing that you're getting, that the grower has the best intentions in mind and that you want to help support the grower to achieve their goals while they're helping to achieve my goals. And so you first and foremost, starting there with making sure that um, I'm getting the type of fruit, the quality of fruit that's that meets the style that I want. So what does that mean? Um, I mean, for me, that is different depending on what wine that I'm making. You know, I make, I say I have three pillars of wine because I do, of course, Pinot Noir. Um, if you, I, not to say if you don't, you're doing something wrong, but I mean, in the Willamette Valley, we have such a blessing of amazing Pinot fruit here that it does seem like a missed opportunity to not make Pinot, and it's just such a gorgeous wine. Um, so I do Pinot. I do aromatic whites. I tend to champion lesser known white varieties. And then I do Rhone Reds. And I do some from Oregon and some from Washington. 
Um, so I, I do have an opportunity to work with a whole wide variety of growers. Um, so my style on those really varies, but I would say in general, my wines um, are categorized as being pretty focused, very elegant, pretty wines, mm -hmm. wines that have a lot of balance to them. Um, and also just, I, I try to not overdo it with the wine that I make. I want it to really be true to represent the sense of place and the the soil and the vintage i don't you know i don't really try and make a cookie cutter wine because it that's not what taking an agricultural product and making a value-added you know premium product is about um so i like on my whites i tend to have more um very crisp acid-driven whites that have a high degree of texture and aromatics um with my pinots i tend to have very feminine, more red-fruited, very pretty, elegant wines mm -hmm. um, with a lot of structure, but not like not overt tannin. Um, and with my big reds, I kind of it's more those tend to be really about texture for me that are are more in the very textural, nuanced, um, and age-worthy uh, categories. So tell me about starting Helioterra then. Uh, but what, why did you choose to be in Portland for, for one thing? And, mm -hmm. and why did you choose sort of the, the model you went with? Uh, PDX Urban Winery and, and bringing in not, not only any of your own grapes and all that. How are the decisions made for, for that? Right. Well, so in 2009, after working eight years uh, at other wineries, I decided it was time to launch my own brand. Um, and I did that in part because I, you know, I was putting my heart and soul into every bottle of wine that I was making and then I was putting somebody else's label on it. I mean, the world didn't need another Pinot Noir, but I needed I needed to know that what I was doing, that every decision that I was making along the way was going ultimately then to something that I literally could put my name on from the start to the finish. Mm -hmm. um, and that ownership of the product and the pride was what was most important to me. Um, 2009 was the year that I launched Helioterra. It was actually uh, the year of the two births. I also had my second child that year. Um, so I was pregnant and, and had my daughter in 2009 as well. Um, so it's a very meaningful year for me in that way. And it was something that um, in hindsight, I maybe was taking on a lot because <laughs> I had a two and a half year old and an infant and a business that I was was starting. And oh, there was that recession thing that happened too. That was, you know, not great. But you know, if I could start in the recession and grow a business, then, you know, that, that has helped uh, build in some resilience. Um, so why I guess that kind of answers the question of why Portland and why urban. Um, I had a little bit of money from a grandparent, but I also looked at my husband at the time and said, hey, I want to do this. And I literally pulled half the equity out of my mortgage to buy grapes and barrels. And I said, you know, I need to bet on myself here. And um, I want to take that chance. And I think I have a great opportunity to, to do something special here. I knew that I had made 90 plus point wines for other wineries and I wanted to do that and build something for my kids you know now that I had a toddler and an infant I wanted to start building something that could be a legacy for our family mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. 
And so that would also tied into a very meaningful um, reason to do it. Mm -hmm. And then I guess the Portland to me kind of answers the question in and of itself. I had I was a parent of two young kids. I lived in Portland, you know. I didn't own vineyards, so I didn't have to be out in town. And there were opportunities. The first year I worked in my friend John Groshow's cellar, um, and he had opened a winery in Northwest Portland, and there was extra space in his building. So, you know, to be able to partner up with him and 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 Vincent Fritchie, and then the three of us down the road ended up launching a brand together as well called Guild Winemakers. And so, you know, like to be able to be in a synergistic space in town that still allowed me to be a parent and a winemaker all together was kind of the no-brainer, right? Sure. So take us through kind of the, the process of getting started. Uh, where did you find your initial grapes? Uh, where did you make your, you mentioned where you made your wine at least the first year. The name of your label and your design, right. all that kind of stuff. Tell me about the, kind of the, all those details. Totally. Um, you might have to feed me a few of those questions as that, I'm that, getting that's, into it. That's okay. That's a lot. Um, where to get my grapes? So first and foremost, um, the first year I only made Pinot and Syrah, and I only made 400 cases. Um, so <coughs> I bought, you know, just a couple of tons, six tons, and a few fermenters and a few barrels. Um, uh, the first half of my Pinot was from Apolloni, and I had been their winemaker for three years, and I said, guys, I adore you, and I need to do this for myself, and I'm going to go and launch my own brand, but I would really love to still work with you. Can I buy some grapes from you? And Alfredo said, and we would be honored. What would you like? And I said, well, my favorite two blocks. I said, I want the 115 from block two and the 777 from block three. He said, they're yours. So, I mean, right out of the gate, I was already getting fruit that I had a ton of experience with and that I already knew very, very well. And I already knew the quality and what I was getting. So that was a big piece of that. And then also on top of that, um, I had found a very small vineyard on the top of Walnut Hill in the Olamity Hills. Um, I don't remember how we came to be connected, but somehow that worked out. Um, I only ended up using that fruit one year, um, but that that was an interesting little nugget at that time. And the rest of it ended up evolving to be grapes that either I had had previous relationships with or ones that colleagues of mine were making wines from and there was a little bit extra fruit or, you know, something that... Um, you just start to build those relationships. You know, being in a shared space, um, you get to talk to and taste through a lot of other, talk to growers and taste through a lot of other barrels. So I was also able to see what other people were doing. And then, you know, as those vineyards were coming online and had more fruit available, opportunities arose. Like Bjornsson was one of those. It's a great example that John Groshaw was getting the first fruit off the Bjornsson vineyard, but they were continuing to plant and grow and then Three years later, I had a contract with Bjornsson, and then three years after that, I made my wine at Bjornsson for a few years, and, you know, they're Midwest like me, so it was just this, you know, very <laughs> synergistic relationship. Um, so every every vineyard came from a slightly different spot, and at, at its peak, I think I was working with about 14 different wineries or vineyards across Oregon and Washington, which is a lot for only about 2,500 cases. Um, I don't ever do things the easy way. <laughs> um, but one of the reasons of 
not having an estate vineyard besides cost is that I make a lot of different things and it allows me to work with a lot of different places and a lot of different soil types and a lot of different grape varieties um, to make a broader range of wines that excite me mm-hmm. and my customers. So, Absolutely. Yeah. Um, name, name and label. Name, label. I love this story <laughs> and I always forget to say it. Um, so. I grew up with the last name Ebenreiter, and then I married as a Hubach. Neither of these are easy names. <laughs> they certainly were not going to be on a label. And so growing up an Ebenreiter, no one could spell it, no one could pronounce it. You know, I was like, I will be damned if I have a label and a name and a brand that no one can pronounce, you can't spell it, you can't say it. And I, you know, I, I as a side note, often feel that like a lot of people tend to not not a lot of Americans tend to shy away from some European wines because they're embarrassed of not being able to know how to pronounce things. Absolutely. Right? Mm-hmm. So like, I didn't want someone to not buy my wine because they couldn't pronounce it. So I said, all right, it's got to be meaningful to me. And it, <laughs> for personal reasons, it had to be able to be spellable and pronounceable, at least to 90% of the population, mm-hmm. right? So naming a brand is way difficult. <laughs> naming a child harder than naming I mean first off there's tons of names out there lots of them that are already in use Mm -hmm. second off to find something that's inspiring and a good story because you have to have that elevator pitch too I mean how many times do I tell someone what I do and then what's the name what does that mean Mm -hmm. a lot Mm -hmm. so this is a story that I'm going to tell for perpetuity in my life so that had to be something that is meaningful Uh and catchy so As I said earlier in this interview, I had an undergrad degree in geology. I chose a name that was inspired by geology and my chosen home of Oregon. So the Oregon State gemstone is the heliolite, which is more commonly known as sunstone. And so helio is Greek for sun and terra is Greek for earth. Uh, So double entendre, what do you need to grow grapes but sun and earth. And then I chose the ammonoid fossil as my logo because I thought that looked like the sun depicted in the earth loosely, but in a geologic way. Um, To nerd out even further, the heliolite, uh, the gem itself, um, so it's located in a main deposit in southern Oregon in in Lakeview, in the Lakeview area, and um, in its truest form, it's kind of an opaque, cloudy, beige-ish color. My Pinot Noir label is an opaque, beige-ish color. Heliolite, though, also has trace minerals to it, and it can have iron and copper. And when it has either, when it has iron in it, it can have a rusty orange color as the mineral. So all of my Rhone Reds have a rusty orange auburn colored label. And when it has copper, it has sort of a lighter teal color, which all of my white wines and rosés have a teal color to them. That's incredibly coordinated. <laughs> or totally nerdy. <laughs> or, but, or both. Or both. We'll go with both. So That's amazing. There's, there's a lot of thought and detail that goes into the name and the label and the color scheme and why. And then, of course, also just their very earth tones and, and you know, I think to the question about wine style, you know, I try and really honor the place and the soils and the fact that we do live in an envir- a very environmentally conscious place and try and buy sustainable organic grapes whenever I can. And so those 
I think also kind of translate into the brand. It's very earth focused, um, you know, very grounded and not super, very classy, classic instead of real flashy and, you know, you know, bright, bright colors. Sure, absolutely. Will you pause for a second? Oh, you know, I like, I like to put some thought into things. <laughs> I appreciate that. Uh-huh. So you mentioned, uh, with your non-Pinot varietals, especially with your whites, you're going with some maybe lesser known things. Tell me about choosing what you want to work with and, and, and kind of how you came across it and then how you find grapes to, to make wine out of. Right. Um, so first I went with Pinot Blanc. I love Pinot Blanc. It's not a popular thing to say, but I hate Pinot Gris. And it, but it's one of those things that Pinot Noir, Pinot Blanc, Pinot Gris, they're all related. I just think Pinot Blanc is just such a more beautiful, aromatic, textural, greater acidity, better wine in, from what I want to do with it. Mm -hmm. um, I do about a half year Elevage program that has a lot of lees contact and lees stirring. I make a very textural, but also very high acid Pinot Blanc. Um, and so I want something that has a little bit of barrel, but um, mostly is kind of pushing the envelope in the acidity, but that the acidity is still within balance within the wine. Mm -hmm. um, that was a grape that I chose in part because I had a lot of experience with the producers that I'd worked with in the past. Almost everyone I worked for in the past had made a Pinot Blanc, mm -hmm. and I just kept really loving it. And then in finding that fruit, um, one of the cellars that I had worked in in my first my first real year in the industry, I think I had six W9s because I picked up every random job that I could. I worked on bottling lines. I helped do office stuff. I did direct consumer wine club things. I worked in a diff two different tasting rooms um, and I worked a harvest. So like I was just trying to piece together any job in the industry that I could to pay the bills so that I could keep being full time ish in wine. Um, so one of that one of those experiences was working with yamhill valley vineyards and i worked part-time in the cellar and part-time in the tasting room mm -hmm. and they had some really tremendous old vine pinot blanc so immediately when i wanted to make pinot blanc i went to them first and said do you have any extra grapes because i really love the the quality of the fruit that you guys have and want to integrate it and lucky for me they said yes <laughs> so um, i've been able to continue to get pinot blanc from them since 2010 um, which has been a core piece of my white program um, throughout the years i did add a little bit of other components of pinot blanc in depending on other sources that i was working with one case in point i made arnais for a while um, Arnais is one of the most rare white grapes in the valley, and it actually just became more rare because um, <laughs> the vineyard that I was buying from got grafted over. So um, it's, I was buying for a while from Kathy Redman, mm -hmm. um, and she had Pinot Blanc and Arnais, and part of the deal was if you want this rare thing, you should also be taking the, the other Pinot Blanc. She was very savvy. Um, and I said, well, that's okay, because I actually also make Pinot Blanc and would like to be making more of it. So um, ended up for a while there buying both the Arnais and the Pinot Blanc from Redmond Vineyard. And um, that came about because, gosh, I had met Kathy somehow along the way. And she said, hey, Anne, I love the white wines that you make. And I don't really want to be making as much under the Redmond label anymore. Would you be interested in the grapes? And I said, it would, I'd be honored. Yeah, absolutely. I love 
I love unusual whites. I think you're a terrific person and this sounds like a great fit. And so ended up buying her, her grapes with her Pinot Blanc and her Arnais for a while until um, rightfully deserved, she decided that she it was time for her to retire and she sold the vineyards. Mm -hmm. So um, that, was, that was one of those things. You know, sometimes grapes just come <laughs> into your life in ways. Uh, let's see, what else? Oh, the star thistle is a great story too. So back when I was working for Joe Dobbs, we had a number of clients. I was managing, I think, 20 different clients of custom wine for a while. So that was a great experience. Um, I also managed all of the white wine for a while. So I got to make pretty much every white grape grown in the state of Oregon. Um, I would say that gave me a leg up on my white wine making experience mm -hmm. that makes my experience different than I think almost anyone in Oregon because I made specifically only whites for two years of my employment with Joe. Um, and of that, one of our clients was a man named Don Mixon. And Don uh, made, used to make Madrone Mountain, which was a Southern Oregon winery. It hasn't existed for almost almost 10 years now um, but one day he came to Joe and I with a single vineyard Norheim Donhoff Riesling Auslesa and he said I want to make this and Donhoff is a very well-known well-respected German producer of Riesling and that was a very exquisite uh, single vineyard wine and we're like well shit we want to make that too <laughs> that sounds great so we did a lab analysis on the wine and we talked about it he said but there's a catch I want to make this wine instead of Riesling I want to make it with Huxelreba and we're like, what the heck is Huxelreba? <laughs> and he said, don't worry, I know exactly where to find it. Dieter Bohm at High Pass grows Huxelreba, and I have already got the source all, all lined up. So I want to make this wine with that fruit. And so challenge accepted. So we, uh, that was, I think, 2004. And we made this Auslesa style wine with 100% Huxelreba. And it was super cool, but what we found is that the, the Huxelreba did not hold its acidity very well and the wine didn't age like an Auslesa should. Mm -hmm. And so then we started playing with it and over the next couple of years, we started blending in different things. And my favorite vintage under Madrone Mountain of that wine was in 2008, where we blended 57% Riesling with 40% Huxelreba, 1% Viognier, and 2% Sauvignon Blanc. <laughs> Those little 1 and 2% have a story, I'll leave that. But the, the reality of what came out of that for me was this roughly 60-40 blend of Riesling to Huxelreba was the golden ticket. And so that was the wine that um, I adored. And even 10 years later, it still tastes amazing fresh as a daisy and super floral and really aromatic and it also takes on this honeyed note and Don named it the star thistle in part because Huxelreba is such a rare grape that the TTB doesn't have it on its <laughs> list of grapes that is approved to be listed on a label in the United States I mean there's only 400 hectares in the world that grow that grape and so even the fact that Dieter grows it and it's here in Oregon and we have access to it is an amazing feat in and of itself. So 
Star Thistle had to it had to have a fanciful name because for one the percentages didn't match up that you could call it Riesling. Mm -hmm. And you kind of didn't want to call it Riesling because it had this super unique grape in it. So instead it's white wine. Um, but the Star Thistle name comes from, believe it or not, it's a noxious weed that grows in Southern, Cal or Southern Oregon and Northern California. Um, which it's tenacious, it's in a fighter, kind of like Huxelreba, you know? It, it's, it doesn't have very much popularity or knowledge, so it's a fighter. And on top of that, the star thistle has flowers that are yellow and very pretty, even though it's on this very like thorny weed, that beekeepers actually make some of the wor top world-class honey from these flowers from the star thistle plant. So here is the tie-in with the wine because the wine does take on a very lovely honeyed characteristic as it ages in bottle. And really, the Huxel Raver Riesling combo has a very light, delicate honeyed note to it as well. So the star thistle uh, name was what came to be. And then when Madrone Mountain um, folded, because uh, they split and moved out of the country, um, a few years after that, back in 2014, I had had a number of restaurateurs and retailers ask me if that wine was ever going to exist again, because people were that impressed with it. And I had actually helped Don sell that wine for a small period of time too. And so in that, um, I called up, or I emailed Don, because he was living in Wales at the time, um, and I said, hey Don, there's this request to bring back the star thistle. May I have your blessing and maybe even your involvement in doing it? And he said, that sounds like a ton of fun. Absolutely. So I called Dieter and he had some Hoxel Reba available. And Don said, but wait, I planted two and a half acres of Riesling at my vineyard in Southern Oregon. Let's call the woman who I sold the vineyard to and ask her if the Riesling has a home because he had planted it specifically to make this wine. And lo and behold, she didn't have a buyer for it yet. And so we were able to get the grapes that were intended to make this wine blend it with the Huxelreba, and he wrote, the, he was an attorney in his previous life, gave me the legal rights to the name. <laughs> and so I now get the, the rights and the joy to make the Star Thistle under Helioterra. <laughs> that is awesome. It's a great story. I love, I love that story. Um, Cause it just, it's been around for a long time. And I, I made that wine for him for four or five years and then Lisa Donovan down in Southern Oregon at Pallet Wine Company made it for him for a few years because it was too hard to come up to the valley. Um, but we still maintain a friendship and we're still friends to this day. Um, and now he lives in Palm Springs and I've gone down and visited. <laughs> so, and, bring, and I bring Star Thistle with me whenever I do. That's amazing. That's a lot of kismet in that one story. There's a lot of kismet <laughs> in that one story. It's a long-winded way of, you know, every grape in a way of how it comes into my life has a story mm -hmm. and they're not all as detailed and as colorful as that one but that's a pretty remarkable one that i love 
I'm interested with, uh, especially looking for kind of unique varietals. Uh, you mentioned earlier when you're looking for people people to work with and vineyards to work with, uh, you're looking for people you, people you respect and trust and like and who are doing things the right way. I'm curious, is, do you have a similar uh, philosophy when it comes to looking for grapes, uh, for soil types, for elevations, for locations in the state, or is it kind of you find what you find based on what you're well, I think it's a little bit of both, right? Because some of those, like some of these unique things are single clone, single varietal, single vineyard wines that there's literally only one place that it grows, you know? Or in the case of Malona Bergone that I also make, there's only six vineyards in Oregon. So in, in a sense, beggars can't be choosers <laughs> when you're talking about like Arnais. It's Ponzi and, and it was Redmond, you know? Like, well, Ponzi doesn't sell theirs. So I can either have Arnais from Ribbon Ridge or none at all, <laughs> you know. So there's there's a few things that that come down to the scarcity factor of some of them, and um, you know, part of that is then also championing those those wines, those grapes, those vineyards, and helping them to champion what they do and get their name out there too. Um, when it comes to Pinot, when I'm buying sometimes up to five different vineyards in a vintage. Yes, absolutely. Then it comes down to clonal selection, site specific. Um, I, like I said, I might only make less than a thousand cases of Pinot, but can source from up to five different sites. And that's really important to me because I want a really complex wine while still having it be a very elegant wine. And to me, the complexity comes from choosing lots of different sites, lots of different soil types, lots of different elevations, lots of different clones, and having each of those have a very distinctly different signature. And not only that, but I also have different growing conditions. So my Pinot picks tend to be about three weeks apart and everywhere in between, um, which I actually really like it that way because it, it gives, you know, they, they all were in the soil, obviously, the same amount of time, but I get different hang time, um, I get different flavor profiles, I have different microcosms of, of climates that get, um, you know, different, not only the terroir, but the microclimate effect on the grapes. So in that sense, yes, like I never had, I had two sites on Ribbon Ridge that were fairly close. Other than that, it was like four sub-AVAs within the Willamette Valley um, that I was choosing my, and continue to choose my grapes from. So, you know, some is Eola Amity, some is Chehala Mountain, some Ribbon Ridge, some North Willamette Valley, soon to be Tualatin Hills, you know, like all over the place because I really like the diversity that all of those different places give me. Absolutely. So uh, since starting Helioterra, you've also, you mentioned earlier, you've collaborated on a number of other projects. You have a cider here. You mentioned the Guild. Right. Tell me about the these endeavors, how they came about, how you managed to balance them on top of what you're already doing. Yeah. Uh, I uh, definitely don't sit still very easily. <laughs> um, so let's see. That's a good question. So um, the first one started, the Guild started uh, because... In that first year, while I was launching, I was super confident in my ability to make wine. I was less confident in my ability to make a brand and be successful with that. I had no idea, where do you go for glass? Who does, do you go to to design a label? You know, what 
where do you get corks? Is there ability to buy in mass? You know, so I actually started sort of a support group for winemakers and assistant winemakers that we were all trying to launch brands at the time. So like Drew Voigt was in it and Jerry Murray was in it and John and Vincent were in it. Patrick Taylor of Canis Feast, like a bunch of folks and we would get together for drinks once a quarter and just kind of shoot the shit and talk about, you know, all of these questions like where do you go how do you start your brand what resources are out there for us um and kind of find help amongst your peers you know the classic thing that oregon is known for is you know neighbors helping neighbors and this is just a different sphere of that this is us doing that on a how do we start a brand who do you go to to sell how do you sell you know how do you print your labels all those things and um so from that Guild became a subsection because Patrick Taylor actually had an idea. He said, okay, let's take this conversation one step further. We're all starting these little projects. What if we could take advantage of the classic co-op philosophy and do bulk purchasing? Is there a savings if we were to all buy more corks together or a container of glass or whatever? Could we help each other out in that collaborative Oregon spirit and help each other be more successful in what we do by bulk purchasing. Well, the reality was there wasn't really a savings on the dry goods side of things, but what we found out was that there's actually a lot of bulk wine that's, you know, a little bit extra because Mother Nature doesn't deal you the same consistent crop year after year. You often get more or less. And so, you know, there's always a winery that has a little bit extra on the table that their sales team didn't plan for that year. So we started tasting bulk wine together and going on that same co-op philosophy we're like well let's just taste what's out there so we did and we're like huh there's some really good stuff out there that would normally go into like 60 dollars bottles of wine that we could buy for not that price and make it into something else that's our own and um so we started blending up our first batch and we're like you know what i think we have something here and that was john vincent patrick and i and so we over a dinner party decided well heck let's all put some money on the table and buy some bulk and create a quick brand and see what we can do and it came about at a time where all of my first vintage of helioterra was in the barrel so i was kind of just waiting anyway you know so kind of looking for something to do couldn't stand still couldn't stand still even though i had an infant at the time but um you know it was a way to still be creative and and also use some of the investment that i had set aside for future helioterra growth to try and put it into something that i could maybe turn that money and then maybe build up my investment mm -hmm. that i could use for helioterra um so trying to think financially strategic there as well and that first batch, we only made like 300 cases. And Catherine Cole, you had mentioned her earlier, and Catherine put us on the top of the food section of the Oregonian back when the paper actually still had a lot of distribution. And she had a half page article about us launching this brand. And we sold out of those first 300 cases in a month and a half. And we're like, oh, I guess we actually have something pretty good going on here. <laughs> so we started Guild as a lot series wine. And every time the blend changed, we changed the lot number. And so we just kept on blending more wines and reinvesting it and growing it. And here we are 
eight years later still making blends and so we built in a white wine we built in a rosé but we we've always done a roan red blend which is part of where i fell in love with morvedra um and you know so it gave us the ability to do something a little bit different and it also really helped us in our own brands kind of that support group the whole you know the need to learn from it this became um we all joked that it was kind of like a crash mba in wine because that <laughs> sure. brand grew pretty quickly mm-hmm. for a while um and it allowed us access to get our own brands onto like the new seasons and whole food shelf mm-hmm. pretty early on mm-hmm. and an exercise in becoming core brands in some of those stores and like these things that like I alone as Helioterra probably couldn't have achieved at the same level without having this cohort and this mm-hmm. other experience and this other label and then you know we grew through distribution as well and was able to use Guild as a tool to say all right hey distributor we want to help you save money on transport why don't you buy a half a pallet of this Guild wine that I do as a partnership and then a half pallet of Helioterra and you've just reduced your transport costs. Mm -hmm. So there's all sorts of efficiencies of how those things built in together. Um, And, you know, just to have a sounding board of kind of your dial a friend Mm -hmm. scenario Mm -hmm. of having a a set of colleagues who you really trust, not only in a wine that you're doing together, but then during the harvest season, if there were things that were you know, hey, smell this, you know, what do you get? And and to bounce ideas off of, of how we were making our own wines was kind of, I called them my big brothers, you know, that it's, it was really nice to have close colleagues that you could really trust and, and have as, as an advisory when, when you needed another opinion about something. Sure, absolutely. Um, but then that wasn't enough. <laughs> um, <laughs> Because I, I, I was like, oh, that works pretty well to have this second label, but we didn't want to do Pinot. And I started my Helioterra pricing at a point that could be glass pourable and then increased my price that I was no longer a glass pourable wine. And so I, well, I said to myself, I need to have that so that I could deal with both retail customers and restaurant customers to have a glass pour wine. But I said, you know, I believe in people drinking Pinot Noir every day. And I believe in Willamette Valley Pinot being drank every day. But most Willamette Valley Pinot is not of the price point that you can drink every day. And there was a variety of different quality levels within a lower price point that I was like, I think I could do better. Um, and so I created Nelly, which is predominantly a less than $20 retail Willamette Valley designate Pinot. And I, I, I call it my Pinot for the people. Um, it is all about having a super delicious, easy to love wine with a fun label, fun name, and sort of strip the ego out of it so that there's less pretense, let's not take ourselves so seriously, and let's literally enable people to drink Pinot Noir from the Willamette every single day. <laughs> so um, I then, what was that, 2011, started Wonelli again sort of early on in the in the helioterra days because at that point i still didn't have all of that wine um well and truth be told i was also going through a divorce and i was like i need to get some cash flow (laughs) so let's come up with a creative way to do that that are are totally within the skill sets of what i know how to do so that was my quick thinking Quick thinking, Pino. I love it. <laughs> um, and you also have a cider. And now I also have a cidery, yeah. So five years ago, um, 
I also was at a dinner party with some friends and he, uh, it's a couple and um, he was making wine and cider at McMinimins at the time and they are actually the oldest cidery in Oregon. And um, you know, he had brought some cider home to taste and I was blown away. I was like, this is really good. Tell me about how this is made. And so we got talking and you know, I was like, so wait a minute, you guys start as juice. Because just like grapes, we have a lot of apples, but we also have a lot of resources when it comes to apples that involve cold processing and custom pressing and things like that, that um, a lot of people get juice by, or get apples by juice, not necessarily through owning the orchard themselves. Mm -hmm. And I was like, so wait a minute. So really all you need is tanks, a place to, or, and a means to carbonate, and basically you ferment it like white wine. I'm like, well, I make lots of white wine. I have tanks. I have tanks that sit <laughs> empty half of the year. All we would need is a bright tank to carbonate. I'm like, you guys want to make some cider? <laughs> so similar to the guild philosophy, we all decided that that was a good idea. And it's our winemaker's alter ego to mm -hmm. make cider. And so alter ego was born just a little bit over five years ago. And you know, what's fun with one of the things that I love about cider is with Pinot, we take we do take ourselves very seriously with good reason. There's hundreds of generation, well, generations and hundreds of years of experience behind making premium, premium Pinot Noir. It is in a world class of its own. Mm -hmm. There's a good reason why there's a sanctity around what we do with Pinot Noir. But cider, it's such a new, it's been around for a long time as well, especially in like um, England and France and some in Spain, but domestically, the craft cider scene is still fairly young and thereby there are also not as many rules or pretense around what it means to make cider. And so there's endless opportunity that's only limited by creativity of what you can do with cider and that just that's just joyful you know and the fact that you have a quicker turnaround of your product too so you get you make something you have a creative outlet you get it out into the marketplace you get instant feedback from your customers and then you turn around and make another thing uh, I mean that's super cool um, so that's been really fun and I'm now also the president of the board of the Northwest Cider Association so I've gotten really involved in sort of helping to create what the the rules the structure the like definition of what is Northwest cider what is domestic cider because I think you know while I think my experience in the wine industry and I was on the board of the Willamette Valley Winery Association for a while that historical perspective of where we've gone from the wine industry is a really helpful, interesting piece to add to the cider industry as well. So it's been fun to, again, efficiency and commingling ideas and, you know, it's all about fermentation at the end of the day. Um, so and each, each brand that I do, each wine that I make has a very different but yet it's very specific purpose mm -hmm. and place and customer base and um, you know I just love people so in a way it also allows me just to get out and talk about what I do to a lot of different folks and have a lot of different perspectives. You're dangerous at a dinner party. <laughs> that's, that's, that's a, you, you can't go to any more dinner parties you might have to do another brand. And I, I know I know I know I know, I, know. I, I told myself 
a couple of years ago, I had a moratorium on starting new businesses. <laughs> I, I, I really had to stay focused. And I told my boyfriend, I'm like, and my friends, I said, you can't let me do that. Say no, be firm. Right, right, right. That said that we did just open the wine and cider bar in the, in the front half of the building over the summer, which is almost like starting another business, but it's an accessory visit. Uh-huh, there, uh -huh. you, go. there you go. So you, you started in, in Portland based kind of on necessity. Uh, uh, you've chosen to stay here and now you have your own space after bouncing around for a while. Yep. Tell me A, about, about finding your space and how you ended up here. Yeah. And B, if you ever considered not being in Portland. Um, I mean, I've considered not being in Portland down the road, maybe after my kids are graduated from high school and on to college, but I've still got seven and a half years, not that I'm counting, um, <laughs> before that's the reality. <clears throat> so for the time being, Portland is it's my home. It's where I own my house. My state vineyard, I have one grapevine in my backyard. <laughs> um, that's all it takes. But I mean, I live in Southeast Portland. My kids' schools are walking distance from this winery. And you know, that is, that challenge accepted of work-life balance, of being able to have everything that's meaningful to me all in the same zone. Mm -hmm. For a couple of years, I was driving down to the valley, as I said to Bjornsson, and those guys are wonderful, and the space is wonderful, but the drive was killing me, and it was, it was, it's not worth spending three hours a day behind the wheel of a car. It just isn't, period. You can't, no one, no one likes that, unless that's your job, right? And if it's just your means to get to your job, that's not only a waste of your time, it's, you know, increases your risk of safety and, you know, from an environmental standpoint, the fossil fuel, I mean, the whole thing, right? It's just, it's bad. So, um, the, this was an absolute luck treat that this worked out to be my space because, um, so this space has a near, nearly, going on 20 year history of beverage making. Mm -hmm. um, prior to that, the owner of the building had a commercial photography studio in this building. Hence that we have these skylights here that have natural light throughout the building, um, which we close in the summer to keep the heat out. And we open in the winter because man, who doesn't want natural light in the middle of gray Portland um, or Oregon, I should say, but here we are in Portland. Um, so this was, this building was originally House Spirits. So House Spirits was located here for 11 years when it was getting going. Um, and then they quickly outgrew it. And so they have a much larger space just down the road. Um, and then it was taken over by a shared winery space called Urban Crush that was run by Ed and Lorene um, Fuss, well, Lorene O'Brien Ed Fuss. And um, they had a few different wineries operating in this space. And as luck would have it, Alter Ego needed a space to park every once in a while and have some tanks to make cider in. And there are some very large cider tanks over there um, that were existing here already. So we actually were one of the tenants in this building under Urban Crush as the cidery while I was down in the valley making wine at Bjornsson. And so when Ed Lorene decided they kind of wanted to retire and not do a shared space we said well 
can you give us the contact of the landlord because we would love to take over the building. And it was between us and one other person and um, we luckily the landlord chose us. So I mean, this was like a unicorn. It literally was the only available already built out winery in Southeast Portland walking distance to my kids' schools that we were city, state, and federally licensed to produce alcohol in already. I mean, it literally was, we convinced the landlord that we could take over the lease and sustain it. He changed the locks and the next day we were producing. Incredible. I mean, I couldn't, I could not have lucked out any more significantly than that. Like that was, this has been, and it's a big enough space that I can make both my wine and cider in and have a wine and cider bar in the front. And I mean, all of it, it was just, it was dreamy. It's awesome. Yeah. Tell me about the, the benefits uh, of being in Portland and being part of the Portland wine scene and, and, and maybe some of the disadvantages as well. Right, well, I mean, I think, let's talk about advantages because let's be positive, right? Absolutely. Um, for me, first, from a great perspective, getting fruit from both Oregon and Washington, I'm actually closer to my Washington fruit from here than I would be from, you know, the, the when I was making my wine down in the valley. Um, and I do find it very important to be able to bring in my grapes and process the grapes that same day. So that is uh, an important, important piece. Um, given that my first six years <coughs> were here in the city and that I used to do all of my own sales for about the first six years too, almost all of my customers or my strongest customer base is here in Portland. And, you know, so that was also a no brainer, you know, both my direct to consumer customers and my, my trade customers in retail and restaurants were, you know, first and foremost here. So, you know, I would try and hold winery events when I was down in the Valley, but most of my customers from Portland didn't want to drive down to Salem. So, you know, I, I actually had very lean wine club events for a while because people didn't want to make the drive. And, and without me having the vineyard and, you know, have everything be homed mm -hmm. there, mm -hmm. it was hard. It was hard for me to get over that too. So to be able to have the space that I can not only have my consumers come here, but also hold events and have more, just more going on. You know, Portland is a very vibrant scene. I love being a part of it. I love connecting and doing collaborative things with restaurants and, you know, actually starting next two weeks from now, we're going to start doing an acoustic session up in this loft. And, you know, that might turn into a weekly thing. We're doing restaurant pop-ups to do certain events in here. I mean, being able to be in the city and to collaborate with such a cool, I mean, we're the top, we'll say it, the top food city in America, or at least the top five every single year. And to be housed here and have the opportunities to partner with all the other people doing amazing things in food and beverage mm -hmm. is like endless opportunity, right? And like, I love that stuff. That's a ton of fun. And to be able to bring more people in and obviously turn new people on to Helioterra that helps to, mm -hmm. to build and grow what I do. Downsides, I mean, if I had a vineyard and maybe down the road when the kids graduate and whatnot, maybe I'll buy land and be somewhere in the valley. Maybe it'd be Hood River. I don't know. You know, like it for me right now, there really wasn't an answer besides being in Portland. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Real estate is more expensive, certainly. Um, 
but I think the, the pros far outweigh the cons for me of not being closer to the source given that I don't own a vineyard. Mm -hmm. And tell me about the, the Portland wine scene. Obviously, it's it's growing rapidly, has grown pretty rapidly, despite being fairly young. Tell me about how you've seen it change since, you, since you've been a part of it. Um, well, there's both the wine scene from a producer standpoint and from a SOM standpoint, mm -hmm. right? And so there's a lot more producers that keep coming into Portland, which is just, you know, it's the rising tide floats all boats. You know, the fact that we have a lot of people coming to Portland and a lot of them that are coming for food tourism. And the more of us that have wineries, cideries, distilleries, breweries, all of those things that people who might want to come to Portland specifically to experience the craft nature of what we do here. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're the only winery in town, you're not going to necessarily get as many visitors as perhaps if you all band together and say, hey, I mean, even when we have visitors coming, tourism from Portland that comes to our door, there's instantly, you know, on two hands, a number of places that you can refer them within a short, not only Lyft, Uber, taxi, but also pedicab or bike ride, you know, that people can go and go to another winery or another brewery or cidery that's within really close distance. And so you get a lot of people who are coming here to enjoy what Portland is doing. And the, the wine scene is a very vibrant piece of that. Um, I would also say, a lot of younger wine consumers are getting more and more turned on to not only experience, but also unique, interesting wines. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, I just was talking about a lot of the more unique, interesting, nerdy varieties that I work with. And also the fact that we do have like this room that we're sitting in that's literally a loft that sits out over the cellar. Mm -hmm. And um, to be able to have the opportunity to bring a whole new generation of wine drinkers into a very unique setting um, and give them an experience um, and something that's different than you might get if you were going that's really a more urban type wine tasting experience than if you were out in the valley can't knock it i mean i love sitting and looking at those beautiful rolling hills and vineyards too it's just not what we have here so you know being able to like listen to acoustic show in a loft looking out over some barrels it's a totally different type of wine tasting right you mentioned uh actually i want to back up for a second because yeah. i feel like i kind of we, we, i kind of skipped over the your pre-helioterra in oregon wine days so i'm curious if you can take me quick kind of on the path from you working six different jobs at once in oregon wine yeah, yeah. into you being a winemaker and some of the various places you stopped along the way before you started helioterra yeah yeah i was very fortunate to work with a bunch of really great folks um so like i said my first wine experience was in the tasting room at Tualatin estate mm -hmm. um through that i got to meet joe dobbs um and joe at the time was he had rented the facility there and he was starting to make his mm -hmm. his dobbs family estate label so he um was was growing that um so I, I, while I was doing the tasting room, I would kind of chat with him on and off as he was getting his thing going, but it was still small at the time, which is hard to believe because he's now <laughs> one of the largest wineries in the state. Uh, but Joe had a small production at that point. Um, and so I went to first work at the Carlton Winemaker Studio and um, I was very tenacious and basically wouldn't stop asking Eric for a job until he gave me one. Uh, and had a great year that, well, 
harvest season that year and like I said learned a lot um, from all the different producers there piece together then all those jobs I was talking about mm -hmm. earlier um, but then it was time to I it was that's exhausting you know having a different job every single day at a different place every single day but one of the gigs that I had was I helped out on the bottling line at Adelsheim quite a lot and they bottled a lot and so I just kept showing up and having a good attitude and working really hard and they noticed and so after you know a few weeks of helping with bottling they're like hey you seem awesome and really hardworking. Why don't you come and work Harvest for us? So that next year, I came on to the Harvest crew at Adelsheim. And a lot of their crew was also Aussie and Kiwi that come in for the Harvest season and had a blast. And then at the end of the season, there was two of us that were local that were left. And um, they were going to choose one of us to stay in the cellar. They had actually offered it to the other guy, but he said, you know what? I'm." I'm taking off. I'm going to move. And so they, uh, they gave the job to me. So I ended up being able to work for a year in the cellar at Adelsheim, which was a tremendous experience working with both Dave Page and David Adelsheim. I also got to meet Eugenia Keegan that year because, you know, David and Eugenia are together. And um, she's been an, a mentor to me along the way as a, just a total badass lady in the industry. And it's pretty awesome to, to have, you know, those people in your arsenal of folks to, to call your friends. And um, so after that year, it was a great year in the cellar, but I, there wasn't really any place for me to go because everyone else had their jobs and I was ready to, to grow. And I had a conversation with Joe Dobbs and he was ready to grow too. And so um, he said, well, Ann, are you ready to be an assistant winemaker? And I said, I think I can. You know, I'm certainly going to try. And so um, I convinced him that I was up for the challenge. And so Joe hired me as his assistant winemaker. And so I was his second employee that he had ever hired. Um, Gretchen, who is still there at the helm, uh, was the first and I was the second. So it was Joe and Gretchen and I. And I basically ran the winery for him for three years um, and ran the cruise and made a ton of wine or hundreds of tons of wine uh, <laughs> as the case was. Um, like I said, we did red and white at the Tualatin location for a while and then he split the facility and went to Dundee and so I was able to do two years of only making white wine out at the Tualatin location. Um, it's really the Forest Grove location. It's called Tualatin Estate, obviously. Um, it's a, it's, it just kind of mm -hmm. disclaimer, right? Um, so did that for a few years and one of the clients at the time was Apolloni and Apolloni we had made their wines for them for a few years and then they were in the process of building their winery and then they had grown to the point that they were like hey Anne, you're having your first child and maybe don't want to make as large a quantities of wine as you're making right now would you like to help a small winery grow <laughs> Turns out the answer was yes, and so they hired me as their winemaker. So I went from being Joe's assistant winemaker, making hundreds of tons of grapes, to being Apolloni's winemaker, making, you know, 50, 60, 70 tons of a lot of different really neat stuff. And Apolloni's were, um, they had two kids that were slightly older than mine at the time, my first child, my son. and. 
you know, got the hand-me-downs. And I mean, they were like family. I can't say they're like an aunt and uncle because they're not, they're, they're friends, but you know, it was just like, it was a very familial mm -hmm. relationship. So, you know, I had the, the pleasure and opportunity of making wine for them for three years and, um, you know, help them grow and build their wine program and what they were doing. And then, uh, like I said, a couple years later, when it was time to both have my daughter and uh, move on, then I started with their own fruit too. So. It's quite a path. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Very, very natural evolution. Absolutely. And, and you, so you mentioned uh, mentors you've had along the way, and now you're kind of in a more in a mentorship role. I'm telling about kind of the, your 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 mentoring in the industry. Well, it was funny, um, especially when I was working at the Southeast Wine Collective, because I, so I spent three years uh, producing Helioterra at um, Groschow's place, and that was more a collaborative space. And then three years at the Collective, which seemed more of a mentorship type place, because there's a lot of younger winery, winery or you know winemakers in that building and I started to feel a little bit like I was a consultant for free um, and, I, and so I mean my friend Corey Schuster jokes he's like people would start asking me things I'm like at least you could take me out to lunch <laughs> why didn't you take me out to lunch and then you could ask me all the questions that you want uh, I, I mean I joke and I'm, I'm always happy to, to help people along the way um, but I also do feel very strongly that, you know, there were people who came before me that have allowed me the opportunity to not only be in the organ wine industry, but also grow my own business and support my family and be a part of the amazing community that we have. And so I feel like it's my duty and responsibility to give back in a way as well. So, um, you know, five or six years ago, maybe it was even seven at this point when Sam Tannehill said, hey, Ann, we need to someone to represent the urban team and the women of the industry. Would you mind sitting on the Willamette Valley Winery Association board? I said, absolutely, because that was that whole giving back piece. I only wish that I wasn't so busy as a small producer, you know, small business mom, that I felt like I had a, an opinion to lend and maybe wasn't able to give as much time as I wanted, mm -hmm. but I think that's classic mm -hmm. of busy people that you know your intentions are really strong and your desire is really strong and your execution maybe doesn't meet your expectation of yourself um, but it's something that I, I definitely I was proud of my uh, um, involvement with that and would like to do that again at some point and same thing with the cider and you know it to me that's just part and parcel of being part of a community is that you kind of give thanks and respect what came before you mm -hmm. and you also help pave the growth of where the future of the the industry is going as well mm -hmm. none of us are an island none of us are doing this on our own and even as special of a s snowflake as some of us think we are you know we are still all piece of a bigger thing mm -hmm. that to me i think we're stronger together than we are in divisive factions uh that there's a lot of other industries in different areas that are a little bit more divisive and I, I, I tell people I would never want to be a California winemaker and I mean I just I don't want to discredit because obviously there's a ton of lovely humans that are making wine in California but I just think there's a lot more secrecy and lack of collaboration I mean I think the the kindness the support the community the collaboration that is a core tenant of the Oregon wine industry is a reason why I'm here and still here. Mm -hmm. 
and along those same lines, on your website, you talk about the, all the various causes you support. Uh, yeah. Senior and junior. How do you choose the causes? And uh, you've already kind of mentioned why it's important, but why those causes particularly? Um, God, that's such a hard one because so many people ask because there's so much need. Though the sort of the checklist of who I support. First and foremost, um, I support organizations that are. Um, environmental and specifically hopefully local um, that are doing good things from a environmental and sustainable uh, perspective. Um, second, if it's something that is related to schools and education specifically though, either my, my kids, my friends' kids, or the kids of my customers, because there are so many schools in need that that's obviously a very big one. Um, and other things supporting the community or honestly if there's someone who's a dear friend of mine or a good customer of mine that's something that they're personally championing and putting their time and effort behind because they believe in it if someone has come to me as a personal appeal um, that is another mm -hmm. uh, way to, to support mm -hmm. so you've uh, you've been in the Oregon wine industry for about 20 years now uh, tell me about the changes you've seen in the industry in addition to just purely size obviously right what else about Oregon wine has changed since you've been a part of it god there's a ton I mean it's really interesting I mean first there's technology has changed a lot um, which is weird because I don't feel like I've done this that long even though 20 <laughs> years sounds like a long time and you know and free iPhone <laughs> I know right I mean I sound kind of curmudgeon -y. it was almost before the email <laughs> <laughs> It's, but it's kind of true. I mean, the tools that we have available to us today, whether it's technological tools or media tools or physical tools within the winery, um, and just the the ability to have a lot of resources mm -hmm. has continued to increase. And I think that in turn has made us better winemakers. I think, you know, None of us really want to use all the tools in the toolbox, but if you have to, it's really amazing to know that mm -hmm. a lot of the the labs and other, you know, wine industries that, that like the uh, the chemical companies or the yeast companies, those folks that support our industry have developed a lot of tools that are really interesting mm -hmm. that are out there mm -hmm. it's almost overwhelming frankly how much is out there now that you know it's not just literally take a grape put it in a barrel and ferment it it can be and those a lot of the wines that i make are fairly natural wines that i do a very little bit of an intervention in mm -hmm. but just the fact that there's so many different opportunities to do things i think in a way also helps to differentiate how you do things mm -hmm. because like I said, there's obviously a big natural wine movement that's happening now that, hell, that didn't even exist five or eight years ago um, versus super conventional or versus, you know, just traditional. Like, traditional means a lot of different things, and it basically almost means natural for in many respects because mm -hmm. a traditional winemaker from 30 years ago in the Valley didn't have any of the tools that are available today. And, you know, so that's something that's really been fascinating to see change. Um, I think, I guess I consider myself in roughly a third, maybe fourth generation of Oregon winemaker because there was obviously like the founders and then there was the next wave that came in that, um, like the Willamette Valleys and the, um, oh, 
I don't know, like the, the Raptor Ridge and, you know, a lot of the DDO, like a lot of those wineries. And then there were kind of the, the people who were those folks assistant winemakers that started brands like the JK Carrier and the um, Jay Summer and like all of those folks. And then I'm kind of somewhere either in that bucket or the next bucket. <laughs> and then there's now a bucket or two behind me that have come on. And I think those of us, my generation or younger, not necessarily age, but just in the lineage mm -hmm. of Oregon wine. Um, I think those of us who have started a little bit later, in many respects, try to figure out ways to differentiate ourselves. And, you know, obviously Pinot Noir is something that I'm really passionate about and that I love making, but also it's a really crowded field. And there's, what, 900 wineries now or more, and everyone makes at least one Pinot. So, and sometimes five or 10. So you do the math, you know, like to be able to be a producer that makes five, 800 cases of Pinot a year and to find shelf or menu space on not only a regional, but a national stage is really sometimes quite difficult. So, you know, I think a lot of us in those younger generations of Oregon wine are trying to just do something a little bit different, try and make our mark in some way, and whether that's in how we make the wine, whether it's how we sell the wine, how we you know present the wine, how we make our label, how we describe it, how we offer experience, it doesn't, there's really no specific answer of how that is, but I think just that quest to differentiate and thereby find a niche to get some attention in some way, um, has been something that I see a lot more of as you get to the younger generations of Oregon wine, um, which I think might actually end up being an interesting thing to look at another decade from now of where that's going because the established wineries are still holding true to Pinot and Chard and I think they've done a great job of establishing that and I still think that Oregon has a lot to gain by hanging our hat on Pinot even though a lot of us don't actually hang our hat on Pinot as our primary thing anymore. Because I think, and I'm kind of going on a tangent, but the fact is, I think, um, you know, Washington grows a ton of really amazing grapes. They do a lot of them well, but they don't have focus. And so when you talk about Washington wine, it's a bit more ambiguous and you know, they do Syrah really well, they do Cab really well, they do Merlot really well, they do like Chenin Blanc and Riesling and a lot of things really well. But you don't, you think of Oregon and Pinot, even in Southern Oregon, I mean, not to discredit what the growers across the state are doing, not just the Willamette, but you know, I think people come here first and foremost from a wine tourism standpoint or come to Oregon first and foremost because of the high degree of quality of Pinot and our, our razor focus on promoting it. And then you can learn about all the other things. I mean, over the summer we just had the Alt Wine Fest of the 72 other wines that are made here. That's phenomenal. That's not just Pinot Noir. That's like anything but Pinot and Chard. You know, that's really super cool that there's that many things growing here. And really, the Northwest, we can grow anything, but I do think we still have to have a focus. Burgundy has a focus. Napa has a focus. When I think you have a focus, you are able to at least couch your 
your efforts in a way that helps to promote one thing and you can all rally behind that thing and you can still differentiate yourself behind it. But I think you still have to have a reason why people are coming to you. And I still go out in the market at other states and people hardly know where Oregon is still much less that we make wine or that we make Pinot Noir or that we make those other 72 things. So, I mean, I, I know David Adelsheim champions this conversation a lot. He said in, he has for decades gone in to talk about Adelsheim, but he said, I always tell the Oregon story first because you first have to know where Oregon is and then you have to know where the Willamette Valley is and then you have to know that we produce Pinot Noir and then you can know the rest of the story. Mm-hmm. But you can't just launch in with, hey, I'm making, you know, Petite Verdot from Southern Oregon in Oregon and you don't know where Oregon is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It doesn't work. Mm-hmm. I mean, it can, but... Context. Context, right? So there's back to that bigger picture in that community and what we do and where we go. So what do you see as you look ahead for Oregon wine? What do you see a decade down the road? What do you see Oregon wine looking like? That's a great question. I'm not sure I have a like total slam dunk answer for you. I think um, I think that Pinot will continue to be a focus, and I, I do think that it should. But I also think that um, I think that that razor focus is, and I think in a part, folks like the Willamette Valley Winery Association will miss the boat if they don't have a little bit broader big tent philosophy um, because I think in doing so you're missing the fact that we have such a fertile and bountiful place where we live that can grow so many different things that if we're not talking not only about Pinot Noir but also about how amazing we are at growing all sorts of things. We do white wines better than almost anyone. I mean, we, Pinot, yes, is queen, but we do a lot really well. And so I think that to, to not make room, and if, the, if, if, it, if we continue to only talk about Pinot, I think the Pinot will actually start to diminish the value of itself because I think there is this younger generation of winemakers and psalms and consumers that are much more fickle, that have very little loyalty and are not going to be hanging their hat just on Pinot because they buy the next new thing. And I think that's kind of cool because guess what? There's tons of opportunity out there and it's not just about like a different grape variety, but people are blending all sorts of things into wine, cider, beer, seltzer i mean you name it hard hard soda hard seltzer hard everything is coming out and there's just tons of beverage opportunities and you know i think it will be interesting it's almost like we as consumers are crippled with how many choices there are right now and i think in a way that leads to fewer and fewer pinot drinkers unless we're careful of how we do that Absolutely. And I don't have the answer of what that is necessarily, but I have, I think we need to still promote all things, but do them really well. Uh, so I'm curious, uh, as you look ahead, uh, are there concerns you have for Oregon wine? Are there things you're worried about on the horizon? Um, I think the distribution model has changed a lot. And as a small producer, that concerns me. I think as a, con- as a consumer it concerns me because I think there's 
there's more and more wineries that are coming on and there's fewer and fewer distributors on a national and even a little bit international level mm -hmm. to support the wineries that are coming on and it is getting more and more challenging to have representation to grow your brand outside of just the back of your car um, and frankly it's gotten less fun from my you know small producer perspective you know 10 years in I think I, I had a lot more fun selling wine in in a distribution model five years ago than I do now and I see a lot of shifts in that and I think I see a lot of competition because there's fewer opportunities and there's a lot more pay-to-play scenarios mm -hmm. which that's kind of the ugly underbelly of the the sales side of doing business and I don't really care for that and but it is I think increasingly becoming part of how that business is done and I, I mean that's very common in other industries I just never really wanted to see it in small craft wine um, so unfortunately I think that's happening um, and we'll see I mean I think that that piece is changing things a lot um, I think from my standpoint, one of the things that, now that I have my own space, one of the things that I am looking at is more actively creating experiences and more opportunities to do direct to consumer. And I mean, because of that challenge with distribution that I said, I was, I've been trying to dip a toe in the water of changing my business model to be more wine club, direct to consumer experience driven that I, could build a model where I have more people coming to me than I have me going to them. Mm -hmm. um, and it has to be supported on both levels, but you know, I like that my wine is out there in multiple markets around the US, but it also is really a big drain to get on an airplane a couple times a year to go out and do all that. Cause I mean, I'm, I'm my winemaker, I'm my national salesperson, I'm the forklift driver, I'm the truck driver. I mean, I pretty much do it all. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's no one else to do all of those things and I've got to figure out it's always a chuggle of how to spend your time sure. and to me I love hosting people and for my future now that I have a space in inner southeast Portland in one of the biggest food cities in America it would seem silly to not change my model perhaps to at least entertain that piece of, of market mm -hmm. of where, where I am. So we were talking off camera before we started today about the article Catherine Cole wrote about labor in 2019 and how you, you, you're, you're kind of, she kind of leads with your story. Uh, I'm curious if that's something that you're, another concern you have going forward, if that's something that is going to be harder for you as a small producer to deal with, uh, or if that's a kind of a, hopefully a blip on the, on the radar. Well, I think labor from an agriculture standpoint is becoming challenging. Um, you said earlier that you might have these videos down the road mm -hmm. or re, mm -hmm. you know, rehashing. Mm -hmm. I think it will be fascinating um, taking some of these videos with a different administration down the road that might be more open to uh, a different labor pool that happens to be a pretty big resource that a lot of agriculture in not only the Northwest but in um, all of the United States uses. and. Um, I think the fact that 
there's a lot of fear around. And I mean, there's documented, undocumented workers everywhere. I'm one party removed from that because I purchased my grapes. And so like part of the purchasing process obviously involves the grapes to the point of being picked. Mm -hmm. And that's where I contract them. Um, so I don't necessarily know who's employing who, but if the growers can't get their vineyards pruned, if the grapes aren't harvested, if the vines aren't taken care of because there isn't the workers there available, that's going to dramatically affect the quality of availability or the quality quotient of what we are able to do here in Oregon, well, across the U.S. in general. And the thing is, you know, people, a lot of people have started to mechanize. But let's be honest, Pinot is known as being this very fickle, thin-skinned grape that loves to be treated with kit gloves. And it does not take well to mechanization. It will break, it will mold, it will, we will have, it is almost impossible to maintain premium level Pinot Noir production with a highly mechanized lab labor force, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and that's part of why we demand higher prices with our wines is because you have a, a hand touch in a more finicky growing condition. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So you mentioned uh, your new new tasting bar here, new new space, uh, and some some of your plans for the future. Where do you see yourself as you look ahead ten years into Helioterra, Alter Ego? Whoa, Nelly, everything else that's going on here, what are you kind of hoping will happen in the next 10 years? Yeah, well, I mean, I like I said, I actually would be really excited to, to grow a different business model that includes hosting more people and bringing, bringing more customers mm -hmm. here. Um, I do love entertaining and I love um, sharing my story and have had a lot of success with the, like the one-on-one -on -one appointments that I've been starting to do here in this space. Mm -hmm. um, I obviously have limited time, and time is my most valuable resource, so I can't do that for everyone, everything. But I would love, what I'm trying to do is grow the, like the Wonelli brand and the cidery so that Helioterra can still stay small, handcrafted, and more direct. Mm -hmm. um, at one point, I thought that I was gonna grow Helioterra much larger, and I've started to think the exact opposite of that because either you have to grow to a point and have a bigger team of staff mm -hmm. or you keep it smaller and keep it more hands-on. Mm -hmm. And I can grow the other things and have the staff and the support there. And I think those are the easier entities to work on growth um, so that Helioterra can still stay this like passion project that becomes, that's like where the core of my creativity is and where I can still have a very hands-on approach to make really high quality wines, but on a smaller scale, not making huge quantities of wine. So that's, I think if I could work towards this model that Helioterra can be sustaining for me and my family, but that I can, you know, have more direct to consumer experiences here and still maintain the same level of profitability with Helioterra that allows me to also stay close to home, travel less, and work on growing cider and you know my more value-oriented brands and send those out into the world. Um, that sort of is more how I see my future going. And hopefully one of these days someone wants to buy one of those brands um, and then I can just continue to work on Helioterra. Or more likely start another brand. 
<laughs> Who knows? Maybe I'll go off and start a nonprofit. I joke that I might become mayor of a small town someday. So, you know. <laughs> well, that's a lot of future plans. I like it. Yeah. Good. So if someone were to come to you and say they wanted to be part of the Oregon wine industry, what would your words of wisdom be for them? I would say the Oregon wine industry is a phenomenal group of people and community to be part of. And depending on their level of resources, the conversation would go one of a number of different ways. But I would definitely encourage people to get some experience because there is a wealth of experience here in Oregon. Um, there's a lot of people who are really willing to take their time and take people under their wing and show them the ropes. I think, you know, because of some of the, the challenges that we are just discussing, I think the industry is maybe less open to suffer fools that, you know, if you don't know what you're doing and just kind of throw a lot of money or inexperience at it, I don't know that the, that the industry is as open to that scenario. Um, I think if you come with your willingness to work hard and, you know, put the time in that then you will get and receive a lot back in return. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that, you know, we all take our jobs and our life and our, our craft very seriously and are very proud to show that off, mm -hmm. but only if someone is willing to receive that. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. So that's all the questions that I have for you today. Uh, is there anything, <laughs> anything we didn't cover that we should have covered? Anything I didn't ask that I should have asked? You had a lot of great questions. Thank you. That's, that's all Shelby back there. You had a lot of great questions. <laughs> How did I do by you? Beautiful. Like, perfect. Perfect. Okay, great. Perfect. <laughs> I like perfect. Perfect. Perfect is all we can ask for. Uh, yeah. So thank you so much for your time today, for your answers. Thank and you for, for, your, for archiving them. Yes, absolutely. And we'll go ahead and let you off the hook here. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.